welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I'm going to solo it um, with a couple updates. First of all, the fall semester has started, and I have a pretty heavy load this semester. So I'm going to take a month off. Uh, I may do some solo episodes here and there. I'd rather not. I, I like the uh, format of the two-person conversation. Maybe I'll include some other people, have more than two people speaking in upcoming episodes. Um, but I just wanted to give this update to anyone who's watching or listening that I'm going to go on hiatus for the month of September. Uh, that said, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to review the first 10 podcasts that I've done. I know a number of you haven't um, seen them or you've come on later, and I thought it'd be a good time to recap some of them. So before I do, uh, let me go ahead and just share a thought that I had today. I was um, speaking with someone and, and thinking about my grandparents and, uh, you know, seeing where I am and have, have grown in life. Um, I'm, I'm older now than when I knew them, of course. And it would just be interesting to speak to people from that generation about adult things, um, you know, what it's like to, to be you know, this age to, um, you know, be at this place in life and kind of see from a, an older generation's perspective, you know, how they, how they either dealt with similar issues or, you know, what sort of things do they not talk about? What sort of things don't they talk about? I know it's not always easy um, for older generations to share things. And I, I, I know a lot of things kind of got swept under the rug. So I, I'm always curious about, about that. Now I maybe it's because I like older people. I like learning from older people. I like the older generation. I think um I think we all have a lot to learn from them. So if you're younger, if you're a younger person watching, you're one of my students, maybe I would say get to know your grandparents, maybe go visit um an elderly care facility and listen to their stories, listen to what they've been through, how they survived, the things they did, um, and what it was like to grow up at, at times where they saw these radically different changes in life. Um, I remember my, my great-grandfather, well, my grandfather told me this. My grandfather said about his own father, who was my great-grandfather, that you will never see as many innovations in your life as I've seen in mine, because he went from seeing you know, the um, internal combustion engine start to people on the moon, right? And so that's a, a gargantuan leap, um, the, the one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It really is a giant leap. And um, he might be wrong. We might be seeing more and more innovation and development among people. So with that, that's my little thought, my little reflection. There's so many people, you know, who've since passed on who I just... Um, not because I miss them, but because I, I think that I can gain some wisdom by speaking to them. You know, as I've grown and developed myself as a person over the years, I think that those help me ask different questions or they make me curious about different things in life. And so if you're listening, um, you know, cherish your elders, uh, respect your elders, and really you know, make an effort to learn from them. I, I think that uh, you'll be blown away. And even if 
what you learn isn't immediate, maybe in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, who knows, after you become a parent or something, you know, that advice or the experience you learned about through someone else's life is going to be very beneficial to you in your own. All right. So now let's talk about uh, the podcast. Well, my first episode, I did a solo episode and I did not upload the video to either Spotify or YouTube. The video versions of the spot of the podcast can be found on YouTube and Spotify, the audio on Apple and Google and a few other platforms. Uh, I did it basically as an introduction to myself and the podcast. So if you haven't uh, heard that, go ahead and find it online. Um, it's a shorter episode. I think it's about 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes or something. And basically, I'm telling you who I am, what I'm interested in, what I hope the podcast to be, and um, you know some background on some of the imagery I use. I've since done a couple edits for that on YouTube. I did a video answering a question about the the background image you see behind you, um, because there was some <laughs> some fun curiosity that it created a, among uh, groups of people I know, and that was a lot of fun for me to listen to. But um, it's also a learning moment, I think, in a lot of places. Um, I also laid down a challenge if anyone could could figure out where the horn uh, sound is coming from. So someone uh, rightly guessed. Um, is it a shofar, meaning is it a ram's horn? So it is a ram's horn, but it's not a Jewish shofar. It's not used for that purpose, even though it's the same sort of call it instrument. Instead, this is summoning. So I'll let you figure out the rest from there and um, you know, see how it applies to you know, some of the things I'm trying to do as an educator, uh, but also as a YouTuber, a podcaster, and um, you know, someone who's trying to bridge the nerdiness of academia with the public. Okay. So that's episode one. Episode two, uh, my dad was a guest and we talked about a book we had just read called It Takes What It Takes. And it's a, a sports motivational book, but I, I, we did it for a number of reasons. Number one, the obvious is we had both just read it. So it, it made sense. And we read a lot of books. So we, um, when we read books together, we have good conversations. It makes for fun podcasting material. Um, it was a learning experience. In fact, I think the first, I don't know, um, maybe five or six episodes, I'm still, you know, figuring out the upload of things, even the the sound and intros. And, and you know, that's continually growing and developing, um, as you can tell. Uh, so we chose that book apart from having just read it because it's about sports and it's about um, being both an athlete and a leader. And I think sports are a the most useful tool we have for simulating life in all of its capacities. If you're in high school right now and you're listening, um, I would recommend, highly recommend that you join a, a sport, especially a team sport. You know, I mean, you have some sports like wrestling that are teamish. Right. There's a team component to it, but it's more individual. Um, but if you can join a team sport, you are going to simulate life in ways that you just can't in the classroom. Right. Um, you've got the practice field or practice court. Uh, and, you know, from the, the practice field, you're you're prepping for game time. You play games, you play a season, you play four years. You know, all of these things lead into um, 
learning moments that you just you can't get from a textbook setting you can't get from a lecture setting you can't get from a tv setting so we really like sports books or books that have to do with sports and leadership sports and coaching um sports psychology things like that so it takes what it takes probably um enters into sports psychology we're going to have a couple others that we're going to look at um you know, that's in that field. The inner game of tennis is one of those that we'll be looking at. Um, we'll be looking at um, Jack Welch's book, Winning, um, and then a number of other historical books as well. So uh, go ahead and view that if you haven't already. That is the first aired podcast on YouTube. And when we talk about this book and neutral thinking, um, I really like the premise that there are three distinct states. You know, what happened? What's happening? What's going to happen? Because where do we put our energy? And so many people will put their energy on on what happened. Mm. In sports, it may, it gives you a setback. If you're focused on what happened, that's history. You need to you need to really focus on what's happening now, so you can achieve um, what will happen. And so those three parts are really a good takeaway from this book. Because where do we want to put our energy in something that we cannot change? as far as what happened or something that's going on right now, well, we can make an impact to have the result we want, what will happen. Um, after that, my next podcast was Mapping the Middle East with Subdeacon Daniel Kakish, um, who's been a frequent guest of the program. And, you know, he has, he's taught at uh, numerous universities in the San Diego area in, in Middle Eastern studies. He's fluent in several dialects of Arabic. And in that episode, which is uh, my second highest viewed as of this podcast, um, you know, we basically talk about how the Middle East got its shape, its political geographic shape today. Uh, it, you know, it, it's one of those regions that's quite diverse and complicated. And if you don't know much about the Middle East and why borders are the way they are, I would recommend that episode, um, send it to people, you know, who would be interested in the topic and giving us context for that region. I think a lot of us in the West are very deficient in um, how well nuanced we understand the region. We may know names now because of the news and things like that, um, but we may not know complexity. Um, you know, if we hear, if we're even aware that people speak Arabic in that region, we may be unaware that there are dialects in that region. Um, and even, you know, different peoples who are um, from historical Arab stock and others who have acquired Arabic culture, language, and identity as part of that growth process, kind of in the way the new world speaks either English or Spanish or French or something like that. Those people may not be from England or Spain or France, but the, the culture that survived there, um, we could call it post-colonial or whatever, it has um, develop its own character within that that context, and so the Middle East is a lot like that. Yeah, it was a a, a, a province called Hatay. Yeah, um, it was included Alexandretta and um, in Arabic they call it Liwa Iskandaruna. So Syria hasn't forgotten this, and Syrian maps it's still part of Syria. Um, and if you, yeah, if you go to Syria, it's still, they count it as part of Syria. It's just Turkish occupied, like the Golan Heights with Israel. And, uh, even the whole Northern strip across the Taurus mountains that includes Orfa and, and Antab and all these cities for Syria, that's still Syria. It's just occupied by Turkey. 
It, it, just a trivia note, um, Aintab is, it's Aramaic for sweet water or yeah. the good water, the Ainotaba or the spring, the good spring, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it, the first time I ever heard of that region um, was in the third Indiana Jones movie. Remember Last Crusade? You know, um, they head over to this, what, you know, like, oh, is this just fiction? Because we don't see those maps anymore. We don't see those borders then the fourth one um, is something new that I've been trying. It's called um, anti-theology with Father Cheryl Matai, who is a priest in the um, Malankara Syriac Orthodox Church. And we're calling it anti-theology because we want people to know that I'm allowed to talk to a priest without having to talk theological issues all the time, right? Like uh, priests are normal people. They're right. Well, maybe they're not. Maybe they're abnormal. <laughs> if you know any priests, maybe say, no, they're abnormal. Um, but I, I think that, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, once someone puts on the black, you know, they don't just go to the wall and freeze. Um, once they put on the black, they're, they're still humans underneath. And they had a life that went into developing who they are. And so, you know, we reflect on growing up in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, in this episode, we look at sort of how Karate Kid has been reinterpreted through uh, Cobra Kai, this new, now it's a Netflix series. It was originally a YouTube series. But, um, you know, how these these uh, movies and TV shows from the past, instead of being remade, which sometimes they do, and, you know, I would say 99 times out of 100 or even more, um, what's made what's remade is garbage. I can name a number of, of things like that right off the top of my head, but I won't. Um, this, however, attempts to carry on a story, um, not necessarily as a sequel, because there's a number of movie sequels already. And in fact, what's ingenious about Cobra Kai is that it involves that whole um, canon of films from the 80s and maybe even the 90s. I don't know if yeah, maybe the, the last Karate Kid happened in the 90s. I don't know. Um, but in any case, how that this story from our past is reimagined for an audience today. And, um, you know, in some ways, it actually makes fun of the audience today, maybe without them knowing it. In other ways, it takes different things into account that the past maybe um, wasn't aware of or should have been aware of. Uh, depending on one's perspective. And so it was an interesting reflection. I, I really like that conversation. Uh, this priest and I tend to have very um, enjoyable conversations, at least for our parts. <clears throat> so it, it's the point is it's possible to have a conversation with a priest without it being um, ministerial, you know, pastoral, theological, etc. So there's something about Karate Kid where um, <laughs> where he puts on his like, his, uh, I don't know if it's a do-rag or a bandana or whatever it is he ties behind him. And I was thinking, as you were thinking about it, I was like, that same element was put in to Rambo. Rambo did the same thing. The guy had this sort of bandana. And I remember whenever I wanted to like really be this sort of bad dude, <laughs> I would also, I remember going to a, a flea market and getting it for a dollar a bandana. And I would tie it the same way. Or I would take my my ties from church and after like being at church for like three hours, take that tie and tie it around. And there was just something about like when, when Daniel San, who wasn't like the, the toughest dude in the world, 
which is I tell I think that's why I think Mr. Miyagi is an underrated trainer and coach. Oh yeah, for getting that dude from Jersey to be that great of a fighter. He's but when you had, <laughs> right? But when you had when you had him put it on, like he like like you know he meant business. You meant Daniel said meant business. You knew Rambo meant business, and it was a signal to me that like when you when you gird yourself or you put that on, you meant business. And there were just elements of that movie that even today the Cobra Kai pokes fun at. Yeah, like the show, that's why I like it. It pokes fun at it, not to like take away the. Like the relevance of what 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 uh, Cobra Kai was, or, or I mean, I'm missing it all up, but Karate Kid is. Yeah. But I think there was things that you point to your point. Like back then, there was formulas that worked. There was like arcs that worked. Uh, you didn't make it so complicated with backstory. But now, like if you think about Cobra Kai, there's like there's like so much ele- so much drama, so much things there. That movie, when you watch Karate Kid, is almost so simple yeah. that it's it uh. You know, I don't know. It's, it takes a certain sort of taste to really appreciate it. Um, you know, again, I don't want to offend anyone who is a Karate Kid fan. You've so watched it too today, late for that. Heavy. It's too late. <laughs> right. uh, the multi-platform pastor with the Reverend Dr. Wayne C. Hopkins or WC, uh, Pastor WC, as I call him, who is a pastor in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. Uh, we explore this idea of what it means to to be a pastor with a full-time job and you know, I think the, the interesting conversation we had is that we, we tend to separate the idea of serving a community from working and not necessarily seeing serving a community through one's work. And his research um, dealt with how do you look at, you know, the the mission or job of a pastor in the context of everything else one has to do in life. And many, many people um, aren't able to be supported by their communities. So they have um, numerous forms of otherwise call it secular employment, but they have employment. So it, it seems like there's two things, but his argument, and I, I definitely agree with him is that there's, there's one thing, don't call it, you know, a, uh, I forget what our term was, the dual role pastor, but a multi-platform, you know, you're, um, you're engaged in different facets of life. It was a great conversation uh, worth revisiting. So for me, it was a matter of, am I too good to go and till the land mm-hmm. and make a sacrifice or lead the people in sacrifice? If Jesus could be known as a carpenter, um, he must have done that somewhere along the lines between sermons on mounts and things of that nature. If Peter was to fish and be a fisher of men, he was not giving up the boat. He was just doing recruiting really of a dual nature. Hey, I need to give you some work and I'm also going to give you some word and as a result, allow you to earn your keep and get something to eat and feed your family. So in other words, that duality is not necessarily in opposition Uh, It's an encompassing kind of thing. Uh, And one of the tools that I developed that I talk about and that I use quite frequently now, I'm so glad that this came to me, is I I apply a discernment matrix. When I'm not sure how to make a decision, is this right? Is this something I should take on? Is this something I can do, something I shouldn't do? I go through the steps of this matrix, which helps me to prioritize the calling. You're absolutely right. The vocation of pastor, of spiritual leader, of preacher, all that good stuff, it does become the primary thing in your life. 
And as a result, the other things that you're capable to do, they now become a part of the orbit of that. Mm-hmm. They feed it. They either support it or they allow you to function at a higher level because you're able to do this. It's going to feed into this primary thing. And then it comes to when you do have to say no. Why is that? Well, what is the personal impact? What is the professional impact? You know, maybe if I do this, I'll get more invitations. I'll be able to, you know, charge more and work a little less. You know, uh, what is um, that 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 preferential uh, element? Do I really want to do this or not? Okay. And then finally, that pastoral impact, even though that's a priority, I put that last because we can always justify things, right? Uh, I I have to be honest, what is this going to cost me in terms of my pastoral imprint or the the impact to what it's going to take, if it's going to take away sermon prep time or just meditation time, self-care time. One of the biggest problems with working pastors is they're exhausted all the time. Mm -hmm. Even if they are paid well, even if the church does this, they take them out to dinner. (laughs) You know, my mother still gets upset that no one, you know, cooks a chicken dinner on Sunday morning anymore. And I'm like, well, mom, first of all, it's not 1942. Having to have my dad more frequently because of the amount of books we read. <laughs> um, we read a book that you know had made us both laugh and was good for the business world as much as it was for just you know working world and 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 organiza- organizational structures. That's the Peter Principle. If you haven't read this book, you should read this book. It's really important uh, insofar as how we can understand the way um, mediocrity seems to prevail in so many different domains, uh, whether it's politics, whether it's religion, whether it's um, the office space, a local government, um, you know, anything, schools, you name it, any, anything that uh, requires an organizational structure. In fact, if you watch a series like The Wire, you can um, you know, read The Peter Principle, then go rewatch The Wire. Or maybe if you've seen The Wire, um, when you read the Peter Principle, be like, okay, that's this character, that's this character, that's this character, because mediocrity is a—it's a human question. Like, why, <clears throat> why don't we strive for excellence in everything we do? Shouldn't we? You know. Um, and what's the deal with humans? Are there types? Are there archetypes of humans that um, lean toward mediocrity? Why do we tolerate it? Um, why can't we escape it? Right. So the Peter Principle is a great conversation. Um, I would go ahead and recommend, uh, you know, checking that episode out, the review of the book, The Peter Principle. That's episode six. One job I had, I rose uh, into, you know, uh, the dead end position. Um, I I think I was still competent, though, um, is because I got up at five. I was able to start work at 5 a.m. And so they knew, okay, he's reliable. He's dedicated. Mm -hmm. He's always there. We can count on him. And because of those qualities, I got launched into the team leader position. <laughs> yeah. You know, just, and it may, I, I mean, on the other side, it makes sense. That's the kind of person you want, right? Yeah. And Peter talks about that. You know, people like that, the people who are the dependable and they go, hey, that we need to promote these people. But um, I have a little different twist on this. I mean, same theme. But if you take the allied trades, for instance, I worked at a company that had welders. They went through a couple welding leads or foremen. And it's like they couldn't keep one. So what they did is they decided they take the best welder and make him the foreman. He didn't want the job, but they said, you have to do this. Now, he was a great welder, and he failed miserably. And part of it was he didn't want to do it. And maybe part of it was he didn't think he could do it. But he just wanted to go out and weld. 
And, um, you, you know, and so that's different than business and academia. But talking about business, um, in teaching business leadership classes, um, I've had students who really enjoyed what the discussion was about, and they would say, I wish my boss were in this class. Yeah. My response is, they would probably get an A in the class, but still not understand it. <laughs> right. When you apply the Peter principle, that is the reason why they wouldn't understand the practical application, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, because um, you, you can do well in, 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 you know, in learning, but you don't know how to apply it. And that's where the Peter principle really applies. And, and you get, you're stuck if you can't get beyond that. Then in episode seven, um, monumentality. Basically, uh, I have a conversation with my colleague, Dr. Tim Hogue, on um, one of his research, his major research fields, monuments, and what it means to be a monument. And I think the the summary takeaway from that conversation is, um, you know, he asked the question, is it, is it a monument if nobody cares about it, right? Or is it a piece of art? Right. And so, um, you know, for a lot of people, they never think about questions like this, but uh, it, it's, you know, and there are still some video issues. I'm, I'm growing and developing as a, a podcaster. And um, in this one, I think the, the conversation is um, underrated or under uh, who's rating this anyway. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the conversation is actually quite profound and it makes for interesting distinctions between art and monuments and how um, both, you know, persons and communities remember, remember their past or um, how they use material and how material can activate memory, right? And so it's a cool episode. It might be a little nerdy, um, but I think it's, uh, it's one of my, I don't want to call it a favorite. Sorry, Tim. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a, it's a conversation I, I enjoyed a lot and I think it's useful um, especially, you know, in a number of contexts for students of history, the ancient world, the classical world, and even today where we see, you know, people tearing down statues and um, other monuments and things and asking the question, well, why are they doing this? Is it a, a neo-iconoclasm that's happening? Um, is it sort of staged for the visual of pulling it down, right? Like, is there something to the liturgical aspect of pulling down a, a statue? Um, in fact, that's an episode we we still want to do in the future is um, image destruction. Um, it's kind of like the, it, it relates to this episode of, of monumentality and, and what forms a monument. Uh, so if you, you want to have something on in the background, um, I, I think that'll be a fun episode for you. Maybe not fun. How about interesting? That'll be an interesting episode for you. Well, and that's really the operative aspect of monuments is that they are encountered and that encounter matters. I think that in colloquial terms, we'll use the word monument and we mean like just a big stone, anything. Um, but when we're talking about it in a scholarly sense, if it doesn't, if you can't demonstrate decently well that it matters, it's not monumental. Huh. Um, so like one of my favorite counter examples, which is oddly relevant given current events is um, the eye that cries monument. Um, nobody has ever heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about it's it. A, it's a September 11th monument. Um, that's 
it's a big like stone with a gash in the middle and a single teardrop. Um, but it was donated to the U.S. by Russia after September 11th. Um, and they put it in New Jersey and it's got, it's supposed to have a list of everybody who passed in the attack, but the, the list is wrong and nobody knows that it's there um, and nobody cares. And I, it would probably have almost the opposite effect if people like discovered it and knew that it was given to us by Putin. Yeah. But, but that's a, it doesn't matter. Like it's a massive stone structure and nobody, there's nobody to receive it. So even though it was produced to be a monument, that's, that was the intention behind it. It's really not. Then my most popular podcast um, with uh, Deacon Henok Elias, um, Aksum Los Angeles. Uh, so Deacon Henok Elias runs the popular podcast, The Philosophy of Art and Science. Um, he's an Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Christian uh, from Los Angeles, and he's he's just as much tapped into uh, Los Angeles culture as he is Ethiopian history, politics, religion, and we have a really cool um, uh, conversation. In fact, he he's a good friend and someone who loves language and language learning just as much as I do. So um, you know, give that a listen. You'll if you don't know anything about Ethiopia or just Semitic languages and fun things, go ahead and do that. I'll also be making an appearance on his podcast very soon, doing some Akkadian work. And I hope to have him back um, on mine in short order sometime after October or November. The regime that was in power from 1991 to 2018, and then you could say arguably waning power from 2018 till now, had a fundamental philosophy, to use that word again, of uh, accentuating the differences of people rather than what unites them. And so they would claim that each language, if it could be considered a distinct language, and, and some of these languages really are dialects of each other, um, but that's another argument, you know, for another day. But speaking loosely, considering them all independent languages have 87 languages. So they would argue that there are, you know, 87 cultures. For me, if you look at fundamentally genetics and culture, really we're talking about four to six main cultures. And it definitely is an amalgamation or a hodgepodge. And, but even within those, really, it's about historic Ethiopia is the two, the two to three main cultures of the Amhara and the Tigray, uh, the Tigrinya speakers of Eritrea. And then you can say to an extent, the people of Harar and Guragi. Th those are, and you know, you include the Afar who've, who've always been there and the Somali. And those orbits make up like the whole Horn of Africa. But yeah. Like the Ethiopian nation state and the main identity is really the Amharic and the Tigrinya speakers for the most part, overwhelmingly. Then um, episode number nine is with um, Dr. Chris Estefanos, who now is called Father Elijah. He's been ordained to the priesthood in the time since. He's a Coptic Orthodox priest. 
Um, and we do this conversation, a reintroduction to pain or the reintroduction to pain. It's kind of a play on his own podcast, the reintroduction podcast. As a DPT, he's a doctor of physical therapy. He deals with pain management a lot. Pain creates situations for people to think about the world in different ways, um, to perceive or re-perceive themselves in, in other ways. And so we're both um, fascinated by the phenomenon of pain. Uh, for me, it's part of my research in, in ancient medicine. Uh, for him, of course, it's his, it was his main field as a doctor of physical therapy. So um, I enjoyed that conversation. I think you will. There's any number of domains that can be generated through the pain experience, right? And, and I guess maybe we mean the interpretation of pain. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, when you get into the idea of chronic pain, we know that, or what they, they've rebranded it now is not chronic pain. They call it persistent pain. Mm. When you get into the topic of persistent pain, you find that most of those patients that have persistent pain, there is no mechanical cause anymore of that pain. Meaning we know if a person has a herniated disc that anywhere from six months to a year after the disc herniates, usually it heals there are a bunch of there's a bunch of articles that talk about kind of pre and post timeline herniated discs now a person can re-aggravate it through some sort of movement and that yeah. can give a new acute version of pain but some people when they see their mris that say lumbar disc herniation at l4 l5 they define their experience by an image rather than their 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 symptoms or how they feel dictates how they live so there is a crazy article that pulled a bunch of people off the street randomly and they did mris on them and they found that a number of those people i think it was like 50 or 60 percent of those people had pretty terrible mris <laughs> and zero symptoms and it's fascinating because once you tell somebody there's something wrong with them, mm -hmm. the power of language, you are capable of instilling in them a sense of fear or a sense of hope. And the last of the 10 episodes um, is Orthodox Iconography with the author of the book Gazing on God, Father Andreas Andreopoulos, who is a Greek Orthodox priest, but he's also a professor at the University of Winchester. And he also teaches at Agora University where I teach. So we're colleagues um, in the same department. And um, he, he has a fantastic, he's got a number of really interesting books, but the one I chose to talk about is called Gazing on God. And um, it's a, it's an introduction to icons without being an introduction to icons. So when I say icons, I'm talking basically about the religious artwork of the early Christian and Eastern Christian world. Um, so there are certain stylistic aspects to the way visual imagery is portrayed and what it accomplishes. And what he does in this book is he he spends most of the book talking about the theology of icons, and then he uses a couple, I don't know, six or seven, I mean, there's quite a few examples of iconography and what it conveys visually without text. 
So that's sort of the key. When you think of icons, you should think of communication without text. It's visual communication. Um, it's very cinematic in a way, if you think about it. And, um, you know, prior to the invention of the cinema, um, you have different modes and, and media of art that convey meaning in different ways. This iconography, this tradition um, is highly specialized toward um, being didactic, being educational, as well as spiritual. So there's there's an actual spirituality to the artwork itself. And um, it's been one of my more successful podcasts, more shared podcasts. Uh, it's really interesting. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Now, there are several different different ways to consider um, a, an, a, an event of um, huge importance, such as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. And the first level is to consider it from a historical point of view. Is it something that happened? Is it something that took place in more or less the way that we um, that we see described in the Gospels, in the tradition? And the resounding answer to this question in the Christian tradition is yes. It is the foundation very much of the, um, of the Christian faith. Without this, as St. Paul says, we would not have any, um, uh, any, uh, any, uh, any basis to claim anything else in the um, in, in Christianity. So there's no doubt as to the history of the resurrection. But this is not what is important for um, um, for the rationale that we find in the icon or for the way that we um, that that we um, we celebrate our feasts. The interesting thing about the icon of the resurrection of the Orthodox icon of the of, of the resurrection is that it does not try to represent the um, the moment of the resurrection as um, we could have imagined it. So the image of Jesus emerging from the tomb is something that was known to the Eastern since the, uh, the ninth century at least. We have some examples of, of that icon being present, but they showed no interest in developing it. It doesn't say enough. It's just an exploration of the historical um, resurrection only. And that's not interesting because we don't need proof for this. We know it happened. So what? Yeah. Right. Instead, and actually I happen to have um, that kind of icon here <laughs> next to me. Somebody gave it to me. That is the more usual type of um, resurrection. Now, what do we see in this case? We do not see Jesus Christ emerging from the tomb. We see what is sometimes this, uh, described as the descent to Hades. Now, that is not a, an event that is described in any way in the Gospels or in the New Testament. There is perhaps an allusion to something like that in one of the epistles of Peter uh, that says something about um, Jesus visiting the, the spirits in prison. Um, but hard theology would show us that um, at the moment of the death of Jesus Christ, when he says, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, he is with the Father immediately. There's no time, really, that Jesus spent in the underworld. Although sometimes we hear that in, uh, in the tradition. But the significance of this uh, is the significance of, of Jesus being in the underworld is not something that, uh, that has to be confined in a specific time, in, let's say, the days be between his crucifixion and, uh, uh, and his resurrection. What we see instead in this icon and um, 
the representation of the descent to Hades is Jesus raising Adam and Eve um, and the prophets who anticipated his, um, his crucifixion and resurrection and leading them all the way to, to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, while he has broken the gates of, of, of Hades, he has uh, bound uh, death uh, himself. So we can simply ask, when did that happen? Um, the when is something that we live um, we lived back then in the historical resurrection, and since then, every single day of our life, the theme of that icon is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the, the resurrection of humanity by Jesus Christ. So, in this way, the um, the, the whole technique of the inverted perspective of mirroring myself to this, of looking at this as a mirror of my present condition of trying to find myself, of starting with my own perspective in the icon. All this tells me that uh, this is a comment, if you wish, or a relation of the here and now, not simply a historical memory of, from the past. So in short, that's the, the first 10 episodes. <clears throat> um, as of today, I have 26. Apart from this one, this is episode 27. And um, there's going to be a lot more coming. I have uh, several more in the pipeline. As for now, you know, if I haven't shot it already, I'm probably um, going to be taking a break um, while the semester gets started. And just be, I have I have a lot of different uh, classes that I'm teaching right now, and um, you know, the, the new school year is always a busy time. So as always, if you enjoy the podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you like. You can do multiple subscribes. That's a lot of fun. Um, you know, leave us five star rating. Go ahead and uh, leave us a review if you're on Apple. Um, you know, if you're here on on YouTube, uh, go ahead leave a comment question. Uh, all the comments and questions are great. By the way, they're leading toward you know this archive of uh, a question and answer archive that I have and I'm doing that I tend to release on Mondays according to the schedule I have right now. So um, you know I'm glad you're getting as much out of it as I am. Actually, you're probably not getting as much out of it as I am. I'm really like I'm really into it, so I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> but if you do get anything good out of it, you know, thank God and uh, keep um, you know. Uh, thank you for your support and encouragement. You know, I appreciate your emails and comments and positive feedback. Um, I'm here to serve you. So if you have any further questions or comments, leave them below, um, you know, share the videos. And because my podcast doesn't have a great outro, yeah, I don't have a, I mean, I have the nice, you know, the the music outro, but I don't have a I don't have a good send off. So if you have any ideas for departing comments, um, please leave them in the comments below. I would love to incorporate them into, you know, my uh, my send offs and uh, for future episodes. And with that, I'm waiting to hear from you. Is that a good send off? I'm waiting to hear from you. <laughs>